Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the scariest, spookiest podcast that reads celebrity memoirs. Ashley. Yes, Claire. What do we do here at Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Well, we read celebrity memoirs, but we're pretty convinced all these celebs are tricking us. And so as a little treat, we're here to analyze the shit out of them mm-hmm. for you. If you want directly what's on the page, well, this is not the podcast for that. You can go to the neighbor's house and have that mint here. We're giving you sweet, sweet, sweets. So please don't haunt us with your one-star reviews if that is not what you're looking for. If you are the idiot constable in Scooby-Doo that saw a ghost and thought this ghost is the one haunting a hotel. We unfortunately are the shaggy and the Scooby taking the mask off and finding out it was just the rich white guy down the street. That's this podcast. Yeah. I hope you guys like our Halloween metaphors. I think they made sense. As a reminder, we did hit our 1,000 review goal, and we are so grateful and thankful. So we still adore the five-star reviews. We're just going to be reading them at the end of the podcast now as a treat. Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir... What would be the most haunted chapter? (laughs) Okay, I am not like a paranormal gal. I'm a regular normal gal. I'm very neurotypical, as they'd say in the ghost world. But I did text my family group chat, and I was like, does anybody here, have you ever been haunted before? And my mom was like, yes. And I was just like, what? And she was like, one time when I was a teenager, I was walking in the woods in Virginia, and I found a cabin, and there was a man in a coat standing in front of it. And then out of nowhere, he was gone. He just disappeared. And she's like, and then I later found out that he was a Civil War ghost who had been haunting that cabin. And I was like, I have never heard this story in my life. I can't believe you've just been casually walking around with a ghost sighting in your past. And then my dad responded and says, I've been haunted by my missed opportunities my entire life. (laughs) And I said, yes. What about you, Ashley? What is the most haunted thing to happen in your life? I would say the most haunted thing is yet to come. I would like to make a plea at this moment to the ghosts listening right now. I know you're out there. I'm not a haunted gal. I just casually believe in ghosts. I really think that they're there, but I've never seen one. And I just want to know why they don't trust me. I mean, look at us. We're on a podcast. If you saw a ghost, how long would you keep that a secret? I don't think it has to be a secret. I'm just like, why can't we be friends? If you have a message that you're trying to get out, who better to tell than me? I would say it on a podcast. Your long lost loved ones might hear it. Hey, ghost. Have you ever thought that maybe your great granddaughter is a worm now? (laughs) I feel like you're haunted by exes. You just got that typewritten letter from an ex. That is a haunting. You guys, I really know how to find the ones that I can't shake. It is crazy crazy. And I mean, it was a beautiful letter. I'm right. He's listening, but it's not the first long letter I've gotten in my day. They love to tie up loose ends way late in the game. It's like a a signature. I don't have a physical type of the guy that I usually date, but the type is writes a long letter after the fact. Now that is spooky. (laughs) Right before we get into this week's memoirist, I want to state a couple reminders. You can subscribe to our Patreon for extra sauce. We talk about celeb gossip, all of our biggest secrets, and it is a secret platform. So no rats, all juice. For another place to hang out, have a longer chat, we've got The Wormhole on Facebook, facebook.com slash CNBC Wormhole. And it's just like a fun little group to talk about pop culture and books. And now... Let's get into this week's memoirist. Ashley. Yes, Claire. Before you read Yours Cruelly, Elvira, Tales from the Mistress of the Dark by Cassandra Peterson, what did you know of Cassandra or Elvira? Okay, to be honest, 
almost nothing. I had heard the word Elvira. She has one little chunk in her intro where she says that she's just an underground pop culture thing. And I'm like, that is the best way to describe her. She was just this presence that I didn't even know that I'd heard of. But the more I read about her, I was like, okay, these are references that I recall. I just didn't know anything about it. I remember having a neighbor who used to put on these plays in the yard that she never cast me in. And my mom would always make me go to them to support the neighborhood. If she can't support you, why should you support her? Yeah, it was fucking weird. I hope she's listening right now and oh, how the tables have turned. Andrea. <laughs> anyway, one time she had this play where one of the characters was presenting the play, sitting in a chair on the side. And the character was Elvira and all of the adults were like, oh, that is such a clever reference to have Elvira presenting this play. And I was always like, very clever, I guess. And now that I look back on it, knowing who Elvira is, I'm just like, oh, that is very clever. Okay, Andrea, you've been vindicated. No, not really. What has she amounted to? Where are you now? <gasps> she could be listening. I hope she's a worm. Then I forgive you. Okay, Claire. Yes. What did you know about Elvira? Literally nothing. This was very much a crowd pick. You guys were like, please read Elvira's memoir. And I was like, how could I read the memoir of a cartoon? I thought that canonically she was Frankenstein's girlfriend. <laughs> and I was just like, that's not a real person. <laughs> I did know the name Elvira, though. I was aware that that was like a spooky gal. And I was aware of like the iconography of her when I saw the image of Elvira. There's that picture of her. She's lying on the floor, propped up on her hands. Uh huh. I thought she was the spokesperson for spirit Halloween stores. I just thought that she was like the image they put on costumes and like makeup. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So I didn't know that there was a name to that person. And I didn't know that a person was one individual. I just thought it was like the general idea of, you know, when um, Amazon and Spirit does like knockoff costumes. Uh-huh. And they'll be like, rich valley girl with a single dad who can't drive costume. <laughs> or like, freaky deaky blue man who loves to eat cookies. <laughs> I thought that that was like what Elvira was. I thought she was a scapegoat around copyrighted property. But now I know her and I'm so excited. This is such a treat, you guys. I know we've been on our hate parade for a bit. We don't hate Elvira. We're so grateful to read an older woman's memoir. She took a lot of our advice. I wonder if she listens to the podcast because this book did come out this year. So I'm so excited. Let's get into Elvira. Cassandra Peterson was born September 17th, 1951. This book was written in 2021. It came out this year when she was 70 years old. She was born to a pretty like German family in Manhattan, Kansas. And Swedish. Yes. Big Swedes. But I think the German side, her father's side, was the family that she was surrounded with. She grew up with a lot of aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. So when she was one years old, they lived on sort of a farm and her mom was tending to farm animals and was boiling water to make eggs. And the one-year-old Cassandra pushed up a chair to the oven and then I guess fell backwards and grabbed the pot of boiling water and covered her entire body in third degree burns. She said a third of her body was covered in burns, which at that point in time was an almost fatal amount of burns. 
burn. But because they were so close to what happened to be like the best burn hospital in the country, they managed to save her and it was deeply unlikely. So she spent the next year of her life in the hospital getting skin grafts. So the rest of her life, she does have a ton of scars left over from this burn incident. It's a huge insecurity of hers. So when she was seven years old, they moved to Colorado. Because the town flooded and the government decided that in order to prevent future floods, the town needed to become a retention pond. So they just let the whole town flood. They paid everyone to just get the fuck out, a pretty small amount. And then the family, they just moved to Colorado Springs where they had other family and were like, I guess we'll reset up here. It's so funny because it's one of those books where you forget back in old timey days, (laughs) anything goes. Her life is interesting because of the stories in it. Like, here's a sentence that I was just like, what the fuck did I just read? Years before, grandma had fallen through the ceiling of the garage, hitting the concrete floor below, breaking an arm, a leg, and her jaw while trying to escape from grandpa, who had just discovered that she had been bestowing sexual favors on the town pharmacist in exchange for pain pills. For years, daddy drove her back and forth to the Kansas City for electroshock therapy treatments, but they did little to help. After the infamous incident, she repented and with Jesus' help, and a zealot's fury found God. She became a Jehovah's Witness. And she's like, I remember thinking till the end of her days as a child that I liked her a lot better as the happy pill-popping granny from before. There's photos of these people in the book and it's just so funny to see people from like the 1930s and 1920s and their old-timey yellowed photos and overalls. Just real farm folk and being like, oh my God, she was giving the pharmacist BJs for pills. They're just like us. Human beings. We've been the same since the beginning, huh? So in Colorado Springs, they have a lot of family. They have a very boisterous home. Her parents are always entertaining. And she mentions here that her mom was a deeply abusive person. She's like, we always had people over. And when we had people over, you would see my mom's outside face, which when I first read this, because she had not mentioned abuse yet, I thought outside face meant face with makeup on it. She means outside face, like when there's other people around, her mom is pleasant and welcoming and warm. And then her inside face is the family only face, which is cruel. She said, at home, I walked on eggshells. There seemed to be no correlation between how I behaved and how I was treated. My mother was unpredictable with no rhyme or reason. I could get kicked pinched, hit, or even bitten for walking in the door just as easy as I could for talking back. But what hurt more were the constant demeaning insults, the name-calling, and humiliation? That shit would last a lifetime. It was uncanny how she could find the softest, most vulnerable spot in my psyche, then plunge an ice pick into it. Calling me stupid or idiot was the norm. Of course boys don't like you, she'd hiss. Look at you. You think any man would want to be with someone with all those scars? But meanwhile, she says, Daddy was my knight in shining armor. Unlike my mother, he was never angry with me. So she had this tight bond with her dad. They started out, I think, poor, but throughout her childhood and teenage years, they sort of worked their way up to middle class. She calls them both very upwardly mobile. Her mom worked. Her mom started working for their across-the-street neighbor who would design costumes, and the mom would sew a bunch, and then was like, oh, I'll just do my own costume shop, and it became very successful. She doesn't really talk that much about their financial situation, but she does mention a few different things, like when she just wanted a horse, her parents bought her a horse. My mom ended up opening Colorado Springs' largest costume shop, Peterson's Partyland, and I think that's really interesting because the fame she ends up getting is very much a costume fame. She's like in drag. So it's interesting that there were roots to that in her childhood. And she mentions from an early age, Halloween was just like a huge deal to them. During the Halloween season, I felt like the luckiest kid on earth. My mom and aunt made costumes for me that were heads and tails above the other kids, cheap polyester suits and cheesy dime store masks. She also at an early age is a hardcore stan. She was just like head over heels in love with Elvis. She got really into horror and then gets into Beatlemania. She was like one of those fans who just genuinely put her heart and soul into loving music. And you see this really come out in a lot of ways later on in her life and puts her in some kind of dangerous situations. She spent hours and hours in her bed listening to John Lennon saying, I'm a loser and bawling my eyes out because I loved him so much and he wasn't mine. 
She also started drinking really early. She says her parents built like a rec room, which gave me easy access to the bar. I took a cue from my dad and uncles and used the contents to regularly top off my orange juice or soda pop. It seems like this was around the ages of 11 or 12. She started drinking. And then when she was in like middle school, she and her friend just started stalking bands that came to town. There was two hotels in town. So when they knew that there was a band that they liked that would be performing, even a band they didn't like, just whenever there was a rock star performing, they would go stake out the hotels and walk around and look for them and then just like try to get into their hotel room. She had an early experience with the Yardbirds, which included a young Jimmy Page. They went, they found the band, they just knocked on their hotel room, and then the guys were like, oh, sick, there's girls here, come hang out. And they were like, what the fuck? And it's like, no, no, you guys are hot young girls. At this point, she had already sprouted tits. Yeah. So... They were very stoked to see them there. And then Jimmy Page walks in. She goes, suddenly the door flew open and in stalked lead guitarist Jimmy Page. Without saying a word, he grabbed me by the hand and whisked me out the door and down the hall to his room. No sooner had this door slammed shut than he was on top of me, kissing and tugging at my aunt's sweater while simultaneously unzipping his fly. Strangely, my main concern was that Lucy's sweater would get stretched out. It was my first experience touching a penis. And all I remember is thinking that it felt like a long skinny worm. Ew. So she jumps up and runs and gets out. Her aunt had literally brought them. She's like 13 at this point. Her yeah. aunt had brought her and her friend to the hotel to go meet the band. Her aunt was waiting in the hotel bar. She's like, I don't know if she was drunk or what, but she was like, oh, did that take a while? And she was like, we're back though. And this line, she goes, Kathy and I had escaped being raped and or murdered by strange rock gods and had a really good time. So she becomes kind of a groupie. Also, for those of you who don't know, Jimmy Page, I wouldn't have known, except for it was written. Jimmy Page did go on to create Led Zeppelin. They're famous. Well, I'm just saying if they're like me, I know Led Zeppelin. I don't know that I would have known Jimmy Page. Or maybe I would have been like, I know Jimmy Page is a person, but I wouldn't have known he was in Led Zeppelin. Okay. So I'm just trying to say maybe be more inclusive. I'm sorry. Then she goes on and here's where things get very bizarre. By the time she was 14, she started frequenting a nightclub for under 21s called Hullabaloo. She ended up performing in a go-go dancing contest and she comes in second. She says, I ended up coming in second to an older girl named Betty who smiled all the time and wore a white fringed two-piece outfit that showed her bare midriff. Unfair competition. You can tell I'm still bitter because I remember the details like it was yesterday. And I really like that she's including this caveat to why she remembers this nonsense competition so well. And I feel like every single memoirist that we read has these moments that they're just deeply bitter about for no reason and won't admit that that's why. They're just like, oh no, it's like a classic childhood memory that everyone remembers. And I just really like that she's like, no, no, I'm obviously bitter about this moment. She's very funny in it. Yeah. Her jokes did make me like chuckle. So after coming in second, she's invited to become a go-go dancer at 14. At a nightclub. And she begs and begs her parents and finally they're like, all right, fine. So at 14 years old, she's dancing most nights and then going to school. She talks about being exhausted because her dad would pick her up at like 3 a.m. That's the other thing is that she was 14 years old. So her dad was driving her to and from work and then to school in the morning. So she and her dad were both exhausted because he would pick her up from work at 2 a.m. and then drive her to school at 7.30 a.m. She goes, while the other girls came and went, stepping over me to change out of their sweaty costumes, I spread my school books and papers out on the sticky carpet and enjoyed a cigarette and my beverage of choice, a white Russian, which I figured was pretty healthy as drinks go because other than Kahlua and vodka and contained mostly milk. That's a real clear thing to do. <laughs> I love milk. She ends up working and now she has kind of a source of income. She's working a lot of nights of the week and she says, not before my 15th birthday, I finally had enough of my mother's shit. She starts this pattern of moving out and moving back in. She's crashing on fellow go-go dancers' couches. Sometimes she scrapes together enough money to rent an apartment. So she's in and out of her parents' house for the rest of high school. And she also admits that the reason she couldn't just fully move out and move in with one of her go-go dancer friends is because they had very little tolerance for the fact that she was just like a hormonal teenager. She was like, 
like they didn't want to be my mom. They wanted a roommate. I was not a roommate. I was someone who like needed to be controlled and no one was doing that. She has a lot of self-awareness of when people got mad at her because she was fully being annoying because she's always the youngest one. Yeah. I like that about her. She also has this line that I'm just like, God, times were different. So she's still an underage teenager. And she goes, after our stint at Club Agogo, Cindy and I landed jobs dancing at the Fort Carson Army Base. This was back in the day when the Army supplied go-go girls to the enlisted men in the officers club. So she was 15, 16 years old, driving to an army base and being paid by the government to just look hot for men about to die. She also says that when she started dancing her schoolwork, which she'd previously been a pretty good student, it just all went to shit. But it didn't really matter, it seems, because no one in her family had ever gone to college and that was just not an expectation at all. So as long as she graduated high school, they were like, yeah, I don't know, that's good. She also is like a real hippie at this point. She's doing LSD. She's smoking a lot of weed. She's going to concerts. She's painting herself in day globe paint to protest the Vietnam War. Yeah, she's going to concerts often to try and hook up with musicians, but also she's still a virgin and like very staunchly. She will not let anyone pass the gates. My groupie days peaked with the advent of the Denver Pop Festival in June of 1969, right after my high school graduation. The precursor to Woodstock. I think we need to tell a couple beats of this story. The crazy thing about Cassandra Peterson is the amount of celeb stories she has from before she even got to LA. (laughs) I guess in those days, if you just wanted to meet famous people, you just could. So she says that she and her friend went to this three-day festival. She says they didn't even bother to get a motel because she figured we'd be up all night in the rooms of some band or other. So the first big name drop is Frank Zappa, the only person in the room who didn't seem high, told me in a fatherly way that I was too young to be wandering around the hotel on my own. I paid no attention to him, of course, but I thought it was very sweet of him to be concerned. So the second day of the big festival was the day Jimi Hendrix was to appear. Something happened with the police. I like don't really understand how this riot started, but she ends up getting hit in the head with a tear gas canister when she was trying to go see Jimi Hendrix. She was knocked unconscious by the weight of the tear gas canister that hit her in the head. She wakes up in a medic van and they're cleaning her up. She's walking out trying to find her friend. She's 17 years old and some dude just goes, hey, you want to meet Jimi Hendrix? And she's like, okay. She's like still probably deeply concussed at this point. She ends up in Jimi Hendrix's trailer just chilling, hanging out, having a good time. She explained to him what had happened. He laid his guitar aside, jumped up and grabbed a towel from the rack. Wetting it in the sink, he gently dabbed at the burns. After a few moments, he lit up a doobie and offered it to me. We lounged on the bed and smoked it while he launched into an angry diatribe about the pigs, America, Vietnam, and the system. He ends up having to leave to go perform at this festival and he lays one on her, gives her his number. And then later when she tries to call him to see if he wanted to hang out, he was very on drugs and didn't remember her. Some girl picks up and just hangs up on her. And her friend is so mad because she never asks where Jimi Hendrix is staying because they could have just showed up as they are want to do. And it really reminded me of us, like just driving back so mad. I don't know who would be mad at who but being like I can't believe you didn't just get the address you fucking idiot I feel like you would be mad at me yeah that sounds right (laughs) she had graduated high school a virgin after spending most of her high school days go-go dancing at night and then groupieing during the weekend she said for all my crazy prick teasing behavior I never found myself in any serious trouble while chasing bands I got thrown out of a room or two when I wouldn't put out but I was lucky it was definitely a more innocent time hippies were preaching peace not war so at the end of high school she has a teacher say to her if you could be anything in your wildest dreams what would it be she goes I wondered whether I should admit it out loud to another person for the first time took a deep breath and let it out. I want to be a Las Vegas showgirl. She thought he'd be judgmental. He just looked her straight in the eye and matter of factly said, then just do it. That was kind of the beginning of the first time someone gave her permission to chase her dreams. And she was like, fuck it. I'm gonna do it. She did it very quickly. Her family does this 
annual trip where they would drive out to California and they stopped one night in Las Vegas and she begged and begged to go see one of the fancy showgirl shows and her parents took her. She had a fake ID that was literally just a Xeroxed card laminated and she was like, this will get me in. She goes in, someone sees her and comes over to the table and she's freaking out thinking that they're going to know that she's underage when really they're like, oh, what a fucking smoke show. She should be in our next review. They come over. She thinks she's about to get caught. They end up asking her parents if she can come back and audition. They are not stoked on it, but end up letting it happen. They need the parents' permission because she doesn't turn 18 until September and this is a bare-breasted performance. Yeah. So they need the parents' permission for her to be naked in front of live audiences every night. And this is spring break of her senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. They end up offering her the role, which would start rehearsing in July. So she can still go home, finish high school, and then come back for it. Her parents are just like putting it off, putting it off. They don't want to sign this contract because they think she's being sold into sex slavery. Fair enough. I mean, that's like finally good parenting. I'm like, this girl's been moving in and out and go-go dancing since she was 14 years old. But I guess now we're like a little concerned about what could happen next. Anyway, they end up being convinced that it's a legit offer and they sign the contract and she moves to Vegas. That night she had gone to the showgirls performance. She met a waitress in the bathroom. The waitress is like, if you want, you could come live with me when you come back. So she does. Her aunt drives her out there and she moves in with this girl and her little sister and she becomes a Vegas showgirl for about a year. It sounds brutal. Well, I will say it sounds a combination of brutal and sick as hell. It does make sense to me that she was like an 18-year-old who could do this. The 30-year-olds who were doing this, I'm like, I do not know how you survived. But I feel like if anyone could survive this schedule, it is an 18-year-old. As showgirls, our goal was to display our elaborate, exaggerated costumes along with our bare breasts with dignity and poise. Although the showgirls danced too, what we mainly did was move. We wore a lot of big costume pieces, high heels, and a huge headdresses that were heavy and hard as hell to balance. So we performed a lot of smoother, more graceful movements like swiveling our hips and slow quick quicks. So that's what they were doing. But here's how often they were doing it. They played six nights a week, two shows a night, and three on Saturday with a swing girl who took each girl's place on a rotating basis so we were allowed one extra day off per month. The shows were 11 p.m., 1 a.m., and depending on the night, 3 a.m. with 45-minute breaks in between. She said every night they would go straight to the bars and they had until four to get blacked out and they would just party with everybody on the strip every night till four. Yeah. No vacations. You got one week of vacation a year. But it was wild. So she spends a year just partying with everyone on the strip. She got to go to every performance. She said at that time, the showgirls were kind of like top of the food chain. And their show was very well reviewed and very popular. So they were like the top of the top of the food chain. So she was partying with like Siegfried and Roy. She said on her 18th birthday, Siegfried pulled me into my bedroom, locking the door behind us, laid me across the bed. And after a few minutes of heavy inebriated kissing, asked to be my first, even in my drunken stupor. And as turned on as I was, I managed to once again, avoid losing my virginity. Now that's magic. She ends up hanging out with Sammy Davis Jr., she does this joke where he comes to see their show and I guess he has a glass eye famously. So she puts a fake glass eye on her nipple and when the tassel falls off at the end, she's like swinging around a fake eye. And luckily he comes backstage and is like, I thought that was funny. That really stressed me out. She got to party with Liberace, Rip Taylor, Paul Lind. At one point, her best friend, who was one of the other dancers in her show, her name was Sunny. She and Sunny were always having a real laugh and hanging around. And one time Sunny was like, oh, I met these two bodybuilders and we're going to go on a double date this weekend. It turns out one of the bodybuilders that they went on a date with was Arnold Schwarzenegger. She has this funny story about how they went to an all-you-can-eat buffet. So for three fifty, those two men went bananas eating all the meat that they can find. And then they went on another date the next day and all the waiters were instructed to hide the meat. So they got in there and they were like, where does the meat go? <laughs> <laughs> the 
Joshua was like, we can't afford to feed that man again. <laughs> Ike and Tina Turner, Little Richard, the Jackson Five. So everybody that would perform on the strip, they often got to end up backstage. Yeah. She had this very funny story about she went on a date with Alan Osmond from the Osmond siblings. Mostly we know Danny and Marie, I think. But she says with the whole family, they were very Mormon. They went and met Frank Sinatra. And it was this huge deal. She's wearing this low cut dress. And Frank Sinatra shook everybody's hand. But to her, he just goes, nice tits, he snarled as the Osmond family looked on in horror. She goes, I felt even more embarrassed for them than for myself. They'd probably never even heard the word tits before. But then years later, she's working as a hostess at this restaurant, Emilio's in LA. Frank comes back in and he checked his hat with me. When he wasn't looking, I spit in it. Like how Vira always says, revenge is better than Christmas. I was like, hell yeah, bitch. Get him. The biggest hookup of her Vegas days, though. The biggest celebrity sighting, even, let alone crazy party. One night, Elvis is coming to see the show. This is her childhood crush hero obsession. She actually became a showgirl because of one of his movies that had showgirls in it. Viva Las Vegas. That makes sense. They end up basically doing a private show for Elvis and his friends. The whole theater is empty except for his booth in the back, which must have been much more stressful than just like, oh, Elvis is somewhere in the audience. It's like, no, no, no. There's one table with people at it and Elvis is at that table. Also, if you're performing for 20 people and you're used to the roar and applause of 500, yeah. no matter how well you're doing, it's going to feel like you're bombing. So then she gets invited to go to a party back at Elvis's penthouse after that. It was the whole floor of a hotel. She says it was the fanciest room she'd ever been in her life. At one point, her friend who was dating Elvis's manager, they snuck off. Everyone else peeled away and it was just her and Elvis. And this is like the most 70s thing of all in the conversation pit conversating for hours. We talked and talked and talked. Actually, he did most of the talking and I did most of the listening, which was good because I was so awestruck I could barely move my mouth. For a 34-year-old, he still had a sweet, naive quality that made him seem closer to my age. They ended up talking, she said, about spirituality, religion, numerology, and astrology, which unknown to me, Elvis had been into for years. So there you go. Would Elvis have cleaned up in today's world? Absolutely. <laughs> she still has the envelope where he went through. I mean, it's so funny. The numerology is like, look, bright, home, history, present, mankind, light, death. Look at the numbers. Seven, 11, God. So then they go and sit down at a piano and he starts playing the Moonlight Sonata and she starts singing with him and he goes, you've got a good voice. You should get out of here and get yourself a voice trainer and figure out a job in music. And she's just like, okay. He's like, you will rot in Vegas, basically. He's like, don't let yourself believe that being a showgirl is the top of the mountain for you and that is like the first time she'd ever really considered that that she had achieved her dreams by 18 and she should maybe have more to go for but anyway then one of his handlers comes in and is like it's Elvis's bedtime and she's like what the fuck he gets kind of ushered out but not before they have a sexy little make out real quick the door opened and closed and as I stood staring at him I distinctly heard the sound of giggling girls coming from inside his room hmm and then one of the guys is like, you look way too tired and drunk to drive home right now. You can just sleep in one of the spare rooms. She ends up sharing a room with a kid. Yeah, his cousin. There's two twin beds. Okay. It does stick with her that Elvis is like, you need to shoot for the motherfucking stars because then a role opens up in their review for one of the girls to sing a song and she goes out for it. She gets it and it starts a whole another wave of dreams. Yeah, like where else can I go from here? So before we move on from this, she does mention Elvis one more time in this book and it is when he passes away and she has a really heartfelt moment about it because Elvis had really admonished her for doing drugs. He was like, do you do drugs? And she's like, not really. 
really, but I smoke a little bit of pot. And he was like, do not do drugs. And she's like, it made it all the more confusing when years later he died from an overdose. She talks about being very certain that it was prescription drugs that his team was giving him because they wanted to stay on the payroll. They were like, we just need to give him uppers to keep him working, downers to get him to sleep. It is this very sustained routine that we see in so many celebrity overdoses. I don't know. It did make me really sad reading it because I'm like, damn, this has been a pattern for decades and it just will not stop. We've seen it from everyone from Elvis. And then we saw it in Michael Jackson, Amy Winehouse. We see it in Britney Spears right now. It's like a miracle that any of these people are alive. Demi Lovato. I mean, I don't know. It just made me really sad to read that and be like, my God, they have never not been doing this and they'll never stop. Back to Elvira. This is a story of how she lost her virginity. Yes. So she's 19 years old and she goes home. And I guess there had been a next door neighbor boy who had always been very cute. She later found out this guy hooked up with both of her other sisters. And probably her mom. I think that was a joke. I don't think so. But so they end up having sex. And she said, before I knew what was happening, we were doing it, I think. I didn't feel like much, really. Having sex hadn't turned out to be at all like what I imagined. I honestly didn't feel a thing. So anyway, she goes back to Vegas and she goes to a show. And it's Tom Jones who's saying, what's new, Pussycat, was performing at Caesars and apparently he was very sexy up there and so she goes back to meet up with him they end up talking they end up making out they go back to his hotel and this is the second person she's ever had sex with so he lays her down and has sex with her and apparently he has a big old schlong yes and immediately she screams and it's hurting her really bad and she gets up and she runs out and screams I'm a virgin and he gets very mad at her it doesn't stop bleeding for days so she goes to a hospital and ends up having to get stitches but she's obsessed with this guy because now she's like I feel like this was me really losing my virginity and I'm obsessed with the idea that I think I'm in love with him and that we had this connection and then the next day she goes back to his show again because she thinks that their eyes will lock across the dressing room and then they'll embrace and he'll be like I'm in love with you too but he's hooking up with his two background singers and so she runs out years later she saw him and she goes hi Tom Tom, remember me? Of course, he sneered, looking me in the eye. You're the one with the scars on your back. His cruelty that night was a lot more painful than the stitches. Fucking mean. That's so mean. She says, not long after the Tom Jones experience, I realized that Vegas had lost its charm. The thrill was gone. After more than a year dancing in the show, I'd become robotic. I may have been the youngest girl in Vegas, but I sure as hell didn't want to be the oldest. Now is a good time for leaving Vegas. I can't believe he did that. I don't know why he had to be mean to her. I also wonder if she even had sex with the other guy. I was wondering if he like was just like fucking her thighs. Or if he just had like a really little dick. I just feel like if you're a virgin, you would feel anything. You would feel something. Interesting. So she goes to Paris because the two stars of the show that she'd been doing in Vegas were about to do a new show in Paris and they were like, come out and dance in this show. She gets there and it turns out that the Vegas rules that you had to be 5'7", in Paris you had to be 5'10 to be a dancer. And she was like 5'6 and 3 quarters. So they let her get away with it in Vegas. In Paris, they were like, you're a shrimp. What's French for shrimp? Shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> so this begins like the weirdest year in Italy. Her and her friend end up going to Italy because they can't find work in Paris. They live in this five bedroom house with an Italian family who rents out every room. They're sharing a room. They're living pretty much like hand to mouth. They're finding little gigs here and there where they can sing. Everyone's leaving because it sucks. First, her first friend leaves. So she has another friend to come out and then that friend leaves. And then she begs her parents to let her sister come visit her. So her sister moves out to stay with her in Italy and they run into this guy who had done like a student documentary about them. In Vegas. And he's now working for Federico Fellini, who's like an extremely famous Italian director. And he's like, you can do extra work for money. So they are now paying all their bills with extra work. It's barely enough, but it's enough. Yeah, I guess she worked 30 days on this film. And she's like, if you watch it, you'll see a flash of red hair. And then like one day, Melody, who had met this guy who was like a drug dealer, just leaves. And so now we're back to Cassandra being on her own. And that's when she starts dating this guy who is like a rich, fancy man who doesn't really speak English, but he's taking her on fancy dates. 
One night she realizes that after she goes to bed, he's sneaking out. So she goes around the house to try to figure out what's happening. And she finds a room filled with like furs and jewels. And he comes back. She's like, are you a burglar? He freaks out, throws her to the ground, beats her up, and then locks her in the apartment for four days. It's a basement apartment. She can't get out. No one can hear from her. Nobody knows where she's missing. She's stranded, starving. She's not living with anyone besides him. Like everyone that she moved to Europe with is off doing their own thing or back in the US or gone somewhere else. There's no one that even would be looking for her. Finally, after four days, after she's eaten all the food in the apartment and she's like desperate, the guy's other partner, his burglar partner comes in, opens the door and just says, go. And she like sprints out. She has no money. She's in like the outskirts of Rome. She has no idea how to get back. So she finally makes it back to the place where she had been staying. She panhandles to get there on the bus. Yeah. And then the woman is like, well, I packed up all your things because you didn't pay rent this week. So she takes everything she has, which is like a suitcase and a passport. And she calls the only girl she's ever met in Italy who speaks English. She's this German girl. She calls up the girl and is like, can I stay with you? The girl is like, yeah, meet me here. She's so grateful. She runs with her stuff. They're in like the projects outside of Rome. She's like, it was a part of Rome I had literally never heard of before. It was so scary. There was no running water, no heat, no electricity. And there wasn't a lock on the door. She was like, I realized that she was a squatter, but I didn't really have any other choice. So they just kind of lived there and they would do this scam where they would dress sexy and go out and like tell guys that they were prostitutes who would do a threesome, a two for one deal. And then they would be like, okay, meet us later tonight. You had to pay half up front. And then the guys would pay them $50. And then they would just never go meet up with the guys. They're running this scam and kind of partying and it goes on for about a week. And after like four or five days doing it, Cassandra wakes up one morning and the German girl is gone and taken all of Cassandra's stuff. And the money. She left the passport and I guess the clothes on Cassandra's back. And she was like, okay, thanks. She continues to live there anyway because she has nowhere else to go. And luckily, I guess there's these three Maasai guys live next door from Tanzania. And at first she was like nervous because she was like, they were all super tall and there was no lock on my door. And she's like, and then it turned out they were like, truly the nicest people she'd ever met and they fed her and they were like don't worry we know there's no lock on your door we keep an eye out and she was like thank you so much i can't believe she's still alive i cannot believe she's still alive she does not speak italian i can't believe she never learned almost any italian until later so she meets up with melody again her sister they like run into each other in some random square in italy and they're like oh thank god she says she's covered in sores and scabs and bruises they're roaming around rome and who they run into Wilt Chamberlain, who Cassandra knew because he had gone on a couple of dates with one of her friends back in Vegas. They called him Uncle Wilty. So Wilt takes them out to dinner. It's like their first good meal in weeks. And they're basically regaling him with what's been going on. And they're like, we try to keep it not so desperate. So we gave him like the light version. So I'm like, Jesus Christ, what is the light version? But also I was like, I don't know, maybe tell him he has a lot of money. You need help. You're stuck in Italy. You have no money. Luckily, he takes them out to lunch. And then at the end, he like gives them each a hundred bucks. And they're like, holy shit, this is the most money we've ever seen. So they go back to that Airbnb that they were staying in. And the woman's like, we have no rooms, but if you want to share the closet, I'll only charge you half as much. And they're like, thank you. We're so grateful. So they're sharing a twin bed that takes up the entirety of a closet, but they have like no belongings. So it honestly doesn't even matter. And I think Melody is doing bad. So finally, Cassandra calls her parents and I'm like, look, you guys just got to send us money so I can get her home. And she sends Melody back. But then she meets this band that needs an American singer. And she spends the next year just touring Italy with them, singing their songs. And she has a good time. And her parents even come out and visit her at one point. So it all works out until... One performance, the two women who are the singers find out that all the men are making double what the women are making. And when she finds this out, she's so mad that in a break during the set, like in between songs, she walks out, never goes back and moves to America. (laughs) So she moves back to the States. She ends up joining a review in Miami at the Playboy Club. Working at the Playboy Club, the hotspot in Miami Beach in those days was like a six month long paid vacation. 
Unlike the grueling hours I had in Vegas, the Miami shows ended at a reasonable hour each night, so I was able to actually have a life. Everyone in the cast got free, snazzy accommodations at the hotel and free meals in the restaurant. So all the money I made, I socked away for later. There she meets a guy named Matt, who she does suspect of being gay, but they kind of fall in love. And then he asks her to move out to LA with her when the show ends. And she's like, yeah, sure. Why not? So they move out together. She's trying to become an actress. She tells like a very uh, big biz story about trying to find an agent by just going through the phone book and calling every agency and getting a hard no from everyone except for one guy who's like, totally, totally. I'll come interview tomorrow. He comes and interviews her. He's like this big, overweight, disgusting, sweaty man. He shows up, gives her the sides. He's like, I'll play the other character. The scene is on a beach, so you should probably be in a bikini. So she like puts on a bikini. The scene ends with them making out. And when she's like, okay, I'm done. He's like, well, what about that last part? And she's like, I don't think you need to see me making out with you to get the act. He's like, no, I need to see it. And then she's like, get out of here. And I think she hits him. Yeah. And then he screams, you'll never work in the city. And then she actually later gets him removed from the list of SAG approved agents. So he'll never work in this city. She gets this acting class where the other two women, one of them is Linda Carter. The same thing had happened to Linda. So their acting teacher helped them get him removed. And I was like, oh my God, women power. That's why women have to share their stories. Because all women have the same story. About the same man. It's never just one woman. No. So if we band together, we can unionize and get them destroyed. Here's what I want to say that I find really bizarre is that she in trying to get an agent is like, I just had no experience. And it's like, no, you'd been performing since you were 14 years old. It's so different than now where like, I feel like people have really learned how to like blur the lines of what direct experience is. She'd been in shows on stage for so long. And then she's like, I just had never done anything. So how could I get an agent? Well, I think she finds this later that Hollywood and performing are different beasts. It didn't translate or she needed somebody who could take them with her, but she didn't know how to network properly. Because she knew so many people, but just not in the way you needed to. She made this friend named Donna and she goes, in our spare time, we became budding entrepreneurs. When we weren't working at the rock concert, we did things like track down new all-female band Go-Go's at Starwood and pitch them the idea of us managing them. We came up with shows called Mr. and Mrs. Sex Appeal and Miss Nude America pageant. She said she met Brooke Shields and her mom and then tried to convince them that Brooke should sign on to host a show we'd come up with called Women of Rock. None of our projects ever materialized, but in spite of it, Donna went on to become a successful television writer, producer, and true crime journalist. Just like young in her 20s, running around, just trying to figure out whatever fucking project she can come up with to pay her rent that month. And before she fully commits to acting, she does have that realization where she was like, I was just deeply unfocused. I wanted to be successful in showbiz, but I like didn't really care what and I didn't really know what. She's just running around, meeting people, seeing what she could come up with. The only reason she got her SAG card is because a friend of hers was producing Goldie Hawn in a movie and Goldie Hawn was going to be in her hometown. So she spent the day taking Goldie Hawn around Colorado. And then when she got back to LA as a favor, Goldie Hawn got her one line in a TV show so that she could get her SAG card and then become SAG eligible for shows. She ends up catching her boyfriend, Matt, in bed with a dude. Actually, in the intro, she's like, the one time I almost got cast, I was last minute kicked out by an executive who said he didn't like my acting. But she's like, it was also the executive I had caught with my boyfriend having sex years earlier. God, so which was it? Which was the thing that made him cut me from the show? I guess we'll never know. (laughs) Anyway, she and Matt stay friends. He's always inviting her to parties and things. And he invites her to a party at Zsa Zsa Gabor's house. And she meets this guy there named Bobby. And she spends the night with him. They have like a magical night. She calls him the next day. And the hotel guy is like uh, Mr. De Niro's room. And they have like a little tryst. And then he goes back to New York to work. He had just been cast in The Godfather 2. 
And he's like very stoked on it. And she's like, oh, he was amazing. What a tale. So this begins like her early 20s in LA where she just has the most wild star studded stories. Every story, even if there isn't a celebrity, is just insane. So she starts dating this guy, Bill, who after a brief stint in the LA police academy had been kicked out for dating a stripper and then become a mercenary. (laughs) He had actually had a role as an actor in George of the Jungle. And he was so taken with that concept that he built himself a treehouse. So he was just like squatting in. So she starts dating him. She moves into his tree with him. I thought when she said that we lived in a literal tree, maybe he like did rig some kind of genuine house or like maybe he lived up in the hills and it was like living in a tree. He lived in a literal tree house. She said the shower was they just pulled a hose in that they connected to some neighbor's sprinkler. They had one outlet that he had stolen from a local power plant or something. He would just like swing down off a vine. (laughs) I mean, here's just a sentence that I came across in the book. She goes, Bill's best friend and tree trimming buddy was Marlon Brando's son, Christian. Wow. Interesting. Christian was a doll, handsome and sexy like his dad, but not the sharpest tool in the shed. Sure enough. We know a lot of dumb hot guys. (laughs) For one thing, he never learned to read. What? You're telling me a rich man in Los Angeles just literally can't read. Like, I can't read, but like, he can't read? Illiterate. He once doused his pubic hair with lighter fluid and was preparing to light it on fire to kill the crabs he had contracted from a well-known Russ Myers film actress when Bill stopped him in the nick of time. I can't even deal with that at this point. And then here's another sentence. Bill would later loan Christian the gun that he used to murder his half-sister's boyfriend, Dag Drolet, at Marlin's Mulholland Drive home. He ultimately died of pneumonia in 2008 at the age of 49. It doesn't end with a bang, but with a whimper. <laughs> I also want to read this Bill story. Okay, so she was working as a coat check girl at a place called Emilio's, the same place we know as where she spit in Frank Sinatra's hat. She says, as I walked across the street to my car, a carload of gangbanger types pulled up alongside me, hooting and hollering. Doing my best to ignore them, I jumped in my car, slammed the locks down as quickly as I could, and peeled out. After I'd gone a few blocks, I looked in my rearview mirror, and there they were, stomping down on the gas pedal. When I got near the treehouse, I blasted SOS on my horn and kept going, praying that Bill would pick up on my honks for help. The third time I approached, I screeched to a halt. There was Boo Boo, she calls him Boo Boo, wearing nothing but a loincloth, swinging down from the roof on a rope attached to a limb. All that was missing was Tarzan's famous yell. He was brandishing an AK-47 while clenching a bowie knife between his teeth. When he landed in the middle of the street, he shot a rapid fire round of bullets into the air just above the creep's car. What? Typical LA stuff. Hollywood, man. That's showbiz. What? (laughs) She just like met every famous person. She hung out with Elton John. She met the guys from Queen. She had a little fling with a guy that Freddie Mercury liked and he got mad and like left. So at some point she ends up doing this comedy troupe with a bunch of guys that she knew from just around town. I think she just like knew a ton of people all the time. And one of the guys in her comedy troupe was Al Franken, who years later did not remember her at all. And she's like, I guess... When you become a senator, you need to back away from your past. Too bad he also backed away from the questionable allegations of sexual misconduct. Zing. (laughs) So she's like doing this comedy troupe thing. She's trying to become an actor. She's kind of all over the place, realizing that she's pretty unfocused. And then she gets offered to do this traveling comedy show with a bunch of her gay friends called Mama's Boys. And they have like a pretty insane summer on the road, but it's run by this one guy who has just no business sense. And they end the show just having made no money. She does it for 76, 77. So she's 24, 25 at this point. And they're having so much fun, but the money they make from each show barely covers their 
their motel and food. It's her, five gay guys and one straight guy. And they're like brothers just bopping through towns, doing their show, having a great time. She ends up in Providence Town and just has like this amazing summer of hanging out with drag queens. And then she finally ends up in New York after it all disbands and has like worst few months of her life. Yeah, she decides to try and become an actor in New York and see what kind of work she can get there. And it turns out none. And she's working two full-time jobs trying to make ends meet. She's working all day as a barista at this fancy store and then all night as a cocktail waitress. And she's just like, I had no time to do literally anything and I wasn't even making ends meet and it was insane and I was cold. And so she just left and went back to LA. So at this point, she stops and has kind of a comprehensive sexual assault chapter, which is... Not something we've really seen in other memoirs, but I think it's very effective. She really breaks down a lot of the situations she's been in. The point of this chapter is that nothing is unusual. She does call out Uncle Wiltie. Wilt Chamberlain had a pretty nasty experience. And she says later when she read in his memoir that he had had over 20,000 sexual conquests. She's like, how many of them wanted to be there? And she says, she goes, what was I supposed to do? This is the most famous athlete of our day. And I was a former showgirl who would listen to me, who would believe me. And she talks about like the shame that comes. Every time something bad happened to her, she's like, I just felt like who would believe me? Everybody would say it was my fault. And she's like, part of me did think it was my fault. Like, why didn't I scream? Why didn't I fight back harder? She also mentions when someone has like a hand the size of your torso. What are you supposed to do? Like, you can't fight that. It really ends with her like being hopeful for the Me Too movement and hoping that the more people can speak out, the more safety we'll have. And she walks through and she goes, this is what it feels like to be assaulted. If you're a straight man reading this. She says, here's what it feels like if you were to put yourself in a woman's shoes And she describes a scenario where she's like, imagine you're in your home and a handyman or an electrician you've hired, you're just goofing around, riffing, it's fine. And then he starts to make an advance and you say no, and he just completely ignores you. Like, what are you going to do? And she says, of course, I'm using the man as an attacker here because A, we all know this would never, ever, ever happen with a woman as the perpetrator. And if it did, it would be a fantasy come true for most guys. This is something that I like didn't find very effective because I don't feel like it's useful to be like, if a man was ever attacked, that would be his dream. Okay. So I agree and I disagree with you. I agree that that sentence isn't useful, but I also think you are reading it with that critical eye of like, if you don't describe why rape is bad perfectly, then you have a null and void chapter. Well, that was my problem with it is because I do feel like that is the viewpoint of a lot of women do get discredited when there's just like one sentence that doesn't quite ring true. And so I was like, I wish that this sentence hadn't been here because it doesn't quite ring fair to me. And so I think the rest of the chapter was so effective. And to cap it off with this part, I was like, I don't know if I was like an arrogant man reading this. I would have read that one sentence and been like, oh, fuck you. But I guess even that perspective of being like, well, I have to read it through the most arrogant man's perspective to see whether or not it holds water. You don't have to do that. You could just say, yeah, I agree with what she said. I don't think the man who's looking for the clause that discredits this entire chapter we're not going to convince them anyway. So you don't need to say it wasn't good because worst case scenario is somebody else might say it's not good. Yeah, I guess that is completely true. And I was annoyed with myself when I read that one part and I was like, oh, I wish this wasn't here because it was an important chapter and I'm really happy she wrote it and I'm happy that she named names and called stuff out and talked about her experience so vulnerably. It just made me kind of sad on a couple accounts. One, that that was my initial reaction, but two, the fact that she even felt like she had to have that part in here where she was like, picture this from your own perspective. She does such a good job of laying her own perspective the fact that she even had to be like empathy 101 she ends up being like i hope that one day we can raise men to see women as human i'm like oh my god that is a low bar to hope yeah yeah she talks about like her experiences both as a child growing up and being in hollywood there's nowhere that's safe 
So she gets back to LA after her stint on the road and then in New York and decides it's really time to focus the fuck up. And she does some real high level manifestation. I made a vow to not leave LA again for another traveling show. No matter how bleak my finances became from then on, I would focus on acting and even more specifically on comedy acting. I promised myself that I would no longer go on any interviews or accept any jobs that weren't for comedy roles. The first thing I did was write down the specific things I wanted in painstaking detail, beginning with a good long-term acting job and a lasting romantic relationship. And then she joins the Groundlings. Yes. And this was really interesting to me. She says that it was like right around the time that Groundlings started getting plucked for SNL. I mean, Lorraine Newman, she mentions as like the first person who got pulled and she was in the founding cast of SNL. Didn't even exist yet when she started poking around. As soon as getting on TV became a result of being in the Groundlings, all of a sudden it was much, much harder to get in. But she said, I like signed up for a few classes and then I was in the cast. I do think it's good advice. If you feel like you're just spiraling, you have to be like, well, what is it that I want? And I have to pursue that singly. Yeah. She's like, you're like a captain of a ship. If you have no compass, then where are you supposed to go? She joins the Groundlings. She's bopping around, watching her friends be very funny and achieve some success. She says it's ironic that she was not very good at building a character because her entire career became founded on building a character a couple years later. So she's pursuing this and she said it really did start helping her career. She goes, I had kept a running list of my audition to role getting ratio. And she said before the Groundlings, I was getting one in every 30 auditions, which is some brutal statistics. God bless her for keeping going. And she goes, but once I started the Groundlings and I was part of that group, I was getting one in seven. But even that wasn't enough to keep her afloat. So she's living in this shitty apartment around this time. And across the hallway, there's a couple that is constantly getting into domestic disputes and she says twice while I was living there I called the police because the yelling was so bad one day in the middle of the day which was unusual the yelling was worse than it had ever been and she looks and she sees this woman covered in blood getting assaulted by this man who was chasing her she falls downstairs falls out the door and he kicks her one last time and she calls the police and goes you have to come over I think a woman's being murdered she runs over to the woman the woman's on the ground she looks at her The man who has two gloves on comes and says, how is she? And she goes, I don't think she's okay. And then he just walks off and throws the gloves into the bushes. She ends up spending the rest of the day at the police station, sort of recounting the events. It ends up getting ruled at just a random robbery. They later said it was an African-American advertising executive with no prior record, turned himself into the police long after the murder. The victim turned out to be the daughter of a powerful politician and Texas instrument executive and the ex-wife of a prominent Hollywood producer. Days after turning himself in, the killer was found dead hanging from his belt in the cell. The Los Angeles Herald examiner claimed that she was murdered during a random robbery. The whole sad story still strikes me as very fishy to this day. I wonder what the fuck happened there. Yeah. Right around that time, she had started dating a guy named Mark. After this event, she's like, I literally cannot be in my house. So they end up moving in together to another apartment that also, it turns out, had been a part of this weird saga. The murderer, after running out of the crime scene, goes into the hills, finds this guy, kidnaps him, and makes him take him back to his house, where he then ties them up. Yeah, so she ended up accidentally moving into the kidnappee's house. Yeah, like the reason this house was on the market is because the guy had moved out because he had been kidnapped in his own home, in the home that she moved into. Very bizarre. So she and this guy are really hitting it off. They end up getting married. She realizes that he's basically the man from her manifestation list, the long-lasting relationship that she always wanted. And on their honeymoon is when she gets a call that they're looking for a new horror host. 
because they're revamping this weekend horror show. So this is in August. She's on her honeymoon. She tells her friend, no, I'm not coming. Like I'm on my honeymoon. Every time I leave LA, I get a call to come back. I run back. I never get the gig. This time I'm taking my week. And her friend's like, you'd be perfect for it. And she's like, I don't care. So she comes back and it turns out they still haven't found their horror host. And so they're revamping this old show. And so they're revamping the character Vampira. The August before her 30th birthday. And she decided at 30, she's going to give up on her dreams and just find a regular job. Mm -hmm. So she goes in, they hire her on the spot. She's going to become Vampira. On the first day of shooting, they find out that they do not have permission from Vampira anymore to use her name. So they put a bunch of names in a literal hat. Everyone just comes up with a couple of names. They pull out Elvira and they're like, all right, action. You're Elvira now. In September of 1981, just days before my 30th birthday, the show called Elvira's Movie Macabre debuted. It goes really well. She starts getting phone calls. People are freaking out. She wore this really plunging neckline and high slit. And she says because it was just local TV, they were able to get away with a lot because it was kind of under the radar. It kind of became a hit locally. Like people knew who she was. She says that she's still working a temp job at this point. So she tells the temp job she has to take Thursdays off to film. And the guy's like, well, what are you filming? And when he tells her, everyone in the office is like, oh my God, Elvira, we know her. Yeah, they're all very stoked on it. She has this interesting sensation because Elvira becomes an overnight success in Los Angeles. And then she still doesn't quite look like her because she wears a wig and a lot of makeup to be Elvira. So it's this whole thing. She ends up getting interviews and she starts becoming a local celebrity. She starts booking appearances. She asks her friend John Paragon from the Groundlings to come on board and help write it and becomes like their full-time job. They're doing everything together. They go in on Mondays, watch all the movies, write all the jokes. They film on Thursdays. And it's this funny bit where... They're filming at the local station where they do the news. So they can only film between 1 p.m. and 5 p.m. Because at 5 p.m. the news goes on. So if it didn't get filmed by 5, it didn't get filmed. (laughs) But it slowly builds momentum. And in May 1982, Movie Macabre was among the first wave of TV shows ever to be broadcast in 3D. They do this 3D shoot where she's shaking her boobies into the camera in 3D and they're selling the 3D glasses at 7-Eleven and she goes to get in line for her own glasses because she's like, they were so fucking cheap that they didn't even give me any. And she is at this point questioning where the money goes. When she got the job, I think she was making $375 a week. When it became more successful, she got a raise and was getting $500 a week. She never talks about whether or not she ever made real money doing this. I don't think she ever made money from the TV. I think she made money from the campaigns that went along with her. But I do want to point out at this point, her manager is Mark, her husband, Mm -hmm. who's only her manager because he is her husband. He has no business being her manager. He is a failed creative himself. Yes. She like throws the dog a bone and he wanted to be a composer. She lets him compose the theme song. I do not think he was a good manager. No. They had to get an outside lawyer to buy the rights to Elvira back. And she says, thank God they did because the network owned the rights to Elvira. And then the network got bought at one point and they kept Elvira on the new network, but had the old network owned the rights, they wouldn't have been able to do that. They really slid under the door in making sure that Elvira didn't disappear into the ether. So now she has some success. It seems like it's very campy and fun. Obviously, it wasn't as big as 30 Rock, but it had that 30 Rock vibe of it seemed like she knew everybody around town. And so she would ask all these random people if they'd come be in it. Like Pee Wee Herman's in it. A lot of people she knew from Groundlings came and dropped by. Lorraine Newman. She randomly gets to do the Today Show, the Tonight Show, Entertainment Tonight. She's kind of like a fun shtick that people know. And she also becomes the go-to Halloween gal. So when MTV is doing like a scary movie marathon, they have her host it. She hosts a lot of random scary things on other channels. And she starts doing a review at Not Scary Farm, which is one of my favorite farms that I've never been to. Now it is the mid 80s. 
She has this solid day gig that seems to be raising her cachet, but the AIDS epidemic comes. She does a really beautiful job describing like the horror and sadness that surrounds this time. As a not gay person, I feel like I don't see a lot of it in daily media. One thing that I've actually seen a lot of is older gay people talking about how younger gay people and just the younger people of today don't have a good understanding of what the AIDS epidemic was like. That it was like truly an epidemic because like everyone she knew was gay and they're all dying. The mama's boys, mm-hmm. I think they all died from AIDS. Her ex-boyfriend, just everybody she loved starts dying. And it was this really scary, rapid onset where it just one day everyone had like this pneumonia that was going around and then they had a name for it and it was AIDS and then people were so scared. Yeah, she talks about how the doctors would refuse to treat them or they'd use hazmat suits. That was like a really big problem though is people didn't understand how it spread for a really long time. You couldn't go certain places if you had it. If it was visible that you had it, you were an outcast of society because everyone was afraid of you because no one understood the disease. Her memoir really impressed upon me just like the magnitude of it. That it really was like if you were in that community it was everybody was affected everyone she loves is dying and she kind of spirals I mean understandably it's like a lot of death and then on top of that her two sisters are both really suffering from addiction issues so she is becoming more and more famous she is starting to lose her sense of privacy all of her friends are dying and her sisters are suffering with severe addiction Mm -hmm. and she starts to like get extreme panic attacks I think specifically because she was such a sex symbol she got not just fan mail but like scary violent mail and there was a lot of threats to her safety and also Also, she had this weird thing where she was very visible and she's such an eye-catching figure that people who saw her knew her. And I think there's a lot to cling on to, but she also wasn't famous or successful enough to like then have a security entourage. Yeah. So she was just like going to the grocery store aware that multiple men out there were like, I'm coming to kill you. There was one point where she had a stalker. She started getting really scary mail. She mentions all these security protocols they had. Like her home address was painted onto the roof of their house so that it was very visible to the police. Like if they needed to get there quickly, they could helicopter there. So the show ends up running for about six years from 81 to, I believe, 87. In this time, she makes a movie called Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which, okay, I think she has a really interesting career where it shows how hard it is to ever reach a plateau where you are definitely in. It seems like she has this great career where she's getting known. She has these two incredible campaigns with Coors and then with Pepsi and then with Coors again, where she's making tons of money. She's nationally syndicated. She's doing TV spots and radio spots and her image is all over the country. She's the queen of Halloween. She's making really good money. So I wish that she had mentioned some dollar amount with these campaigns because she mentions how much she was making for the show. And she mentions that she like really just had no money. And then all of a sudden she gets these major campaigns and then she's buying a house and then buying a bigger house and she has a bodyguard and then she's just broke again. The amount of money she has goes from like zero to seemingly a lot to zero pretty quickly. So even though she solidifies herself as this Halloween camp icon, the struggle is always there and there's always something that goes wrong. So she makes this movie and she says it opens up third in the box office under like a Tom Hanks movie and then a Sigourney Weaver film that she ends up winning an Academy Award for. And so she's like, I'm stoked with third. It was in theaters for three full weeks. Every weekend it made more and more money. But unfortunately, the company that was promoting it, the guy had been selling bad bonds. And because of that, he was arrested. And then because of that, they didn't think we'd have money for advertising. So when he got arrested, the production company pulled out. And then when they pulled out, all of the movie theaters took us off the lineup because they didn't think we'd have advertising money anymore. And they pulled us out of the theaters. And you're like, okay. 
what? <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, and also it's getting bad reviews. But then it went on to be one of the best selling ever home videos. And you're like, okay. I bet it was like a Jennifer's body in that it became kind of a cult classic that gained popularity as time went on. But then she tells a story about going to CBS and selling this sitcom. I'll walk you through it. The premise is her and her aunt are two witches. And they move back to a small town in Kansas. One day, their niece shows up on their door and is a very powerful witch, but all she really wants is just to be normal. They have a talking black cat. And it's just a story about these two ant witches and this one niece witch trying to live a normal human life with their talking black cat. She says, the pilot was ordered. Everybody at CBS loved it. It was so funny. The executive of CBS thought it was incredible. But the day it was supposed to be picked up to season, the executive was sick and the guy just under him hated them. So they canceled the whole show and nobody could believe it because it was going to be so successful. And then the very next year at CBS, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, a story of two magic ants and one niece witch (laughs) and a black talking cat obviously had its very successful run. We were saying... I don't think that that's how it works. I don't think that if one executive one time is sick, there's just that single meeting where they all like vote. It just felt very hard to believe there must have been something else that they didn't like about it. And that's why they went on to create the exact same show the next year, but slightly different. It does call into question Melissa Joan Hart's experience of like, oh, a neighbor at the park gave us this great idea for Sabrina. I mean, I think it could have been a combination of the stories where it's like maybe they were pitching it around the time that they were canceling the Elvira version and they were like, oh, this is the family-friendly version that we want it to be. Also, I will say the Sabrina comic from Archie did exist long before the Elvira show. That was Sabrina first. I don't know. I guess cats have always been a part of witch history. Witch history. You say history. They say history. I say witch history. <laughs> anyway, so there's always something that happens. And she's like a little bit wistful about the what ifs. At one point, she runs into Michael Jackson at an award show. And he's like, I wanted you to be the voiceover on Thriller. And she's like, oh, what if that had happened? I also kind of like, what if that had happened? I know Thriller and I know that there's a voiceover. I didn't know it was Vincent Price, who apparently is like a horror icon. Yeah, me either. But I wonder what kind of money there could have been involved. Like, would she have had... royalties. Yeah. You know, as the show winds down, I think she keeps doing whatever she can to keep the name and the icon afloat. It does sound like at the beginning, there was hope that she could audition for other roles as Cassandra, especially because Elvira was its own thing and she looks so different. But I never heard about that again. I think that she really ended up becoming Elvira. I mean, to this day, her Instagram and all of her social media handles are the real Elvira. It doesn't really sound like she did that much outside of it. And it sounds like all of her career resurgences since have been in revamping the Elvira character. So she mentions that they bought this manor in the middle of Hollywood that they discovered. It was like this rundown ramshackle manor with like a heart-shaped pool. Her and Mark pulled all of their money to buy and then it was just a disaster. They ended up actually selling it to Brad Pitt. But I wanted to mention it because the money is really confusing to me. Like I don't understand where it kept coming and going and I don't understand why she never saved any of it. From the very beginning of this story, right? She's like a go-go dancer when she's 14 years old. She's making money and living in her parents' house. And then I guess she just spends all of that money when she goes on a school trip to Europe. Then she's in Vegas. And I know that she's not saving a ton of money. Like she's not being paid brilliantly in Vegas. But the fact that she had literally nothing for that year that she was in Italy, I'm like, where did all of the Vegas money go? Then she goes to Miami and she's doing that Miami review. And she talks about how her rent and everything was covered there. So she's able to save up some money 
But then when she moves to LA with Matt, they have no money again. And she ends up saying that one of the best things about living in that treehouse with Bill is that they just didn't have rent because they were squatting in a treehouse. And I'm just like, how at no point is there any leftover money ever? I do think she has long tracks of not making money. I also think when she is getting paid, they're getting paid dirt. But things also cost her. When she said she was living with Matt, the rent got raised from $90 a month to $125 a month. And they're like, how the fuck are we going to come up with $125 a month? And like, even if you're making jack shit, that's still not that much money to come up with a month. Because then they move into this fancy house in Hollywood and they're just constantly fixing it up. It turns out to be a huge money pit. But then when they sell it to Brad Pitt he covers the cost that they paid for and all the work that they put into it. So they kind of break even on that and move into a smaller, more manageable house. But then when she divorces her husband, there's once again, no money. I do think that... Like life costs money. Yeah, and I think if you're spending at your peak and then the peak goes down, just to give a timeline. So she starts Elvira, the TV show, where she's making $350 a week. So when you're making no money at all and you're the kind of person who's like, I think we need to live in a treehouse in LA because I can't afford to rent. $350 a week is a huge step up. And then eventually get $500 a week week and they're like holy shit so now you could technically afford comfortably a shitty apartment with your boyfriend right but the problem is when you're buying a mansion she said when they moved in and it was an expensive mansion not one toilet worked a lot of the places didn't have any electricity she said they had to hire somebody who worked for one full year just to peel disgusting paint off of each shingle on the roof and it took them one year to accomplish So I think they went all in thinking that Elvira was about to blow up. I think they went in thinking they were about to have a sitcom on CBS. So Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, the movie comes out in 1988. I think it comes out to third and they go, oh, wow, this is about to be a hit. Three weeks later, it's pulled out of every movie theater in America. So there's money that they did not recoup. They had this Coors campaign that I think they were primarily living off of in 1998. That's gone. I just think they had a lot of things that were about to make it. And if in your head you've counted that money and then it never shows up, like it's very easy to spend money that never shows up. That's why they say all that stuff about not counting your chickens. Yeah. Then I also do think a lot of people are living off of her. She talks about at this point, both of her sisters had problems with drugs. At one point, her niece and her nephew were put into the foster care system. So she adopts them and sends her niece to like a rehab school. That's expensive. So... 10 years after Elvira, Mistress of the Dark comes out, she and her husband, Mark, decide that they are going to self-produce another Elvira straight-to-VHS movie. Self-funding a project is something that we know from Zach Braff is a really bad idea. You just shouldn't do it. They decide to do it anyway. Their marriage is also not going well. The loving man that she had married years and years before had become a very controlling and mean person. I think it's very much somebody who went to Hollywood and not only did his dreams not pan out, but then his wife's dreams did sort of, but not enough to keep them rich. He wasn't even just like, well, at least my wife has a ton of money. I think he was like, my wife has a notoriety and our only hope is that she keeps going. And he's also her manager. So their livelihood depends on him being able to sell and promote her. And he deeply resents her in a lot of ways. And so he was probably really bad at his job. In 1994, they finally have a child together. She's 44 years old. And this is, comes after a string of six different miscarriages. Yes. So it was a very painful, difficult journey for her. But when she finally had that baby, she was very happy. But she says, after the baby, things changed. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's hard because she wanted to be with her child. But also now there's a whole nother mouth to feed. And she is the only breadwinner. Yes. 10 years after Elvira Mishes of the Dark, clearly the CBS sitcom fell through. They have this giant money pit of a home that luckily Brad Pitt bailed them out of. And they have to go make this movie. They make it in Romania, pretty low budge. It reminds me of in Schitt's Creek when they go make the birds movie. It's exactly like that. I wonder if that's what this is based on because she's like, we wanted a black cat. There were no black cats. We wanted horses. We had to get donkeys. (laughs) 
So they're in Romania. They're making this film. He is awful to her. And everybody on the cast. She's like, as a producer, he got it done. And it was a Herculean effort. But in doing so, he was so mean to everybody. He like berates her in front of people all the time. He makes her feel awful. And she says at the end of that movie is when she realized that their marriage was over. But it seems like she didn't actually leave him for another two years. She said, luckily, she had friends that got her to a therapist named Lita Singer, who gave her a book called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. I read this book and she goes, I couldn't stop reading it. I was crying the whole time because I was like, oh my God, this is my relationship. So she realizes that he's a deeply verbally abusive person. And she talks about that experience about being like, how could I have portrayed this woman who was so strong and independent, this icon of confidence? And then at home, I'm letting myself be treated like this. And she goes to therapy and she does a lot of work and realizes it really mimics the relationship she had with her mom. And she's like, it wasn't good, but it was comfortable and familiar. She says that he made her believe that if I ever left him, I would end up pushing a shopping cart down Hollywood Boulevard. And after a while, I actually came to believe him. That's the thing about when you're with someone who's constantly belittling you, then you feel like you don't have enough to leave them because you're just like, well, if I'm nothing, how could I just be nothing alone? This is something that really broke my heart. She says that they tried to go to couples therapy at one point and Mark spent the first and only session ranting and raving about what a horrible person I was until the therapist stopped him halfway through his tirade to tell him that therapy was not a form to vent his anger and hatred towards his partner. When he ignored her and continued slinging insults, she stopped the session and asked him to leave. Can you imagine just being like fully beyond therapy like that? So she divorces him and she goes, I knew it was taking a terrible toll on my mental and physical state and worse yet on our child. As much as I dreaded pulling up our family apart and ending our marriage, the only sane option was to leave. I didn't have a choice. If nothing else, I would set an example for our seven-year-old. Women shouldn't be demeaned, disrespected, or treated like subhumans, especially by the man who's supposed to love and cherish them. Getting divorced was the hardest thing I've ever done. In retrospect, my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. But then she goes, I was now a 50-year-old single mom to a seven-year-old playing a sexy vamp to make a living. Mark was her manager, so she goes, I had no idea what to do to pay the bills. In California, 50% of everything is divided between the spouses. While Mark got all the cash, I retained only the assets, like my life insurance policy and pension plan. Things I couldn't touch without paying huge penalties. She also mentions that at this point, she genuinely considers moving back to Colorado and just getting a regular job. She has nothing. Her house floods. It takes all of her money to fix it. She doesn't know what to do. She moves into some tiny apartment in the West Hollywood. And out of nowhere, this woman, T, who was a trainer she had met at the gym, shows up and is like, hey, me and my girlfriend broke up. Can I live here? At first, she's like, what the fuck? No. And then it just becomes very helpful to have someone around the house helping out. They're like girl full house. Yes, they are girl full (laughs) house. But then they've fall in love. They actually start dating and Cassandra has a really hard time with it. Six months in, she like rejects it and T moves back to her parents' house in Portland because Cassandra's like, I'm not gay. In retrospect, it was very hypocritical that I'd spent my whole life being friends with gay people and I couldn't even accept my own sexuality. But she's like, it took a lot for me to be like, I've never been gay before. What does this mean about who I am now? And she's like, finally, I was able to be like, I just love this person and I don't have to define myself. The sad thing is she spent until this book keeping it a secret. My close friends and family knew, but she goes, I was so afraid that because my identity was wrapped with Elvira, my business was Elvira and Elvira loved men and was for men and was loved by men that people would think I was a hypocrite or a sham. So she kept it a secret. It was funny to read this right after reading Man Repeller. Yeah. Because this to me made me sad. Whereas the Man Repeller, I was like, no, you were a sham. (laughs) (laughs) You lied. But Elvira was literally a character she was performing. But it's sad to think that you can't be your authentic self. I mean, that's a parasocial relationship to be like, if the real person who plays Elvira wouldn't literally fuck me in real life, then I can't love this cartoon character vampire. (laughs) 
She goes, I've never had a long-term relationship in which my partner has treated me with so much love and respect, is always there for me, loves me for who I am, and doesn't try to change me. For the first time in my life, I'm with someone who makes me feel safe, blessed, and truly loved. The epilogue is about really coming into herself eventually. So her career does revive as Elvira a little bit. They get a couple other projects under her belt. She gets a new manager. Named Scott Marcus. And I do think if she had had a better manager years ago, she would have had money the whole time. I watched the Dolly Parton Netflix documentary that came out, and she also had a reemergence because she got a new manager and I am like if you are an older woman and you are not being represented well get yourself a new fucking manager because yeah 50 years of talent shouldn't just lie dormant because some guy got lazy I'm all for her getting a book deal and coming back onto the scene I know I'm happy that this is one of the only books that we've purchased new because I'm like she really needed the money from it. so in her epilogue she talks about coming to terms with her scars and how they help define and make her the person she is today she talks about the way that the Elvira costume is genuinely designed to help cover her scars and how she self-consciously hides them because she thinks that other people are judging her. And she talks about letting her scars be a blessing, not a curse, and letting her become the queen of Halloween and grow into the person that she is today. Yeah, she says, we all have our own scars. Let them be a blessing and not a curse. I read this book and reading it, I really liked it. And I was excited to hear about a story of a woman who it took her a little bit longer to get her success. And it was more of a fight because that's more relatable to, I think, what we have been through. And we like (laughs) to see, we want to see someone on the other side of it being like, yeah, it took me 10 extra years, but I'm so happy now. And then to get to the end of this book and be like, well, I still hope that I can afford my rent (laughs) was a little hard, but it was nice to read a book that wasn't like after what felt like years and years of trying, I was finally 22 and living my dream. I think this book was a good reminder that there is no other side of anything. I feel like people our age have this idea to say, well, you'll get married and then you'll be on your career track and then things will be settled and you'll just start coasting. And it's like, I don't know, then you have kids and that's a whole other shit show. People get divorced. That sucks. One day your parents will die. She has a couple chapters about her parents dying and how hard that was. Nothing ever settles. And here she is 70 years old, still in the Hollywood trenches, trying to make a comeback, writing a book to get the hype and clout back and pay her rent. It's always something. But as a human, she's more confident in herself. At least she's living the life that makes her happy. I think she is happy. And I actually think that that's the thing is that success doesn't make you happy. So when I finished this book, I was like, damn, I am kind of sad that she's not comfortable and successful. Like I want her to be able to just sit back and live her life however she wants to and not have to work every day to make ends meet. But I also... I'm like, I don't know. That's not what life is. And your career success and your personal happiness don't have to necessarily be so intertwined. I feel like I've really lived in this like feeling that once I feel settled in my career, everything else can kind of fall into place. I feel like one thing can't be contingent on another thing. Like your happiness can't be a house of cards that's like built on an unsteady foundation. It takes years and decades to keep finding new layers. I think you said this in the Jenna Jameson episode, therapy is a moving target. What you need will change. When she met Mark, she was so happy with him and they were really in love and she just got Elvira. And I think in her 30s, there was this exciting, it's all falling into place. I have everything I want. And then she talks about how she went through all those miscarriages. And for 10 years she struggled to have a child and then she had a baby at 44 and then you go okay finally like that chapter's closed now I have my dream child and then as soon as she has that baby the cracks in the foundation of her relationship completely fell apart and then here she is 50 years old having sex with a woman for the first time and now she's like now I'm finally in the greatest relationship of my life and it took her till 50 to get there whatever your scars are make you who you are and eventually learn to embrace them but it just takes for fucking ever but you'll get there you'll get there you all see Anyway, I think that this was motivational, if you read it that way. Everyone you love will die. Your whole family will become addicted to drugs and get cancer, but 
you'll be happy someday. But if you have the fight still in you, you can keep kicking. You know what I mean? You just can't ever look around and say, I'm done trying. I feel like she's still fighting for her happiness. And so right now, it might not last. I don't know how she'll do at 75, but at 70, she's feeling good today. And for 70, she is strikingly beautiful. I don't know what work she's gotten done, but it's good. If all of the house money went into her face, that was money well spent. She does not need a mortgage. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming along this week. I hope you have the happiest, spookiest Halloween yeah, of all time. Yeah, I hope this prepped you for Halloween. Get your friends together and watch Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, because she needs the royalties <laughs> and we like her and we're rooting for her. We're rooting for her. We'll see you guys next week. Yours cruelly, Ashley and Claire. Also, I'm going to thank our five-star reviewers right now. So I just want to say I love you guys so much. Thank you for reviewing us. Chelso Row, thank you for adding this review to our beautiful row. La Suave, this is the suavest review I've ever seen. Megan and Georgie, thank you for being two best friends who wrote the best review. Seth Hell. Do you know what? I'd go to hell and back for you. A happy warrior. Thank you for bringing joy to war again. Shannon McNamara. You guys listen to our Patreon episode with Shannon. She is so funny and follow her new podcast, Fluently Forward. Engine 51 forever. Thank you. And you know what? Yes, 51 forever. CSL 622. You know what? 623. Hi, Didi Ka. Thank you so much. Chi Chi Palele. That is a beautiful name. Kate Rose XOXO XO to you too. Chels Prim. Thank you for the most prim and proper review. Iffy Lover123. Don't be iffy. Be a confident lover. M.A. Miller. Thank you for milling this fresh review. Annoyed AF, I hope that we've made you a little less annoyed. Mrs. Judge Barnes, thank you for judging this podcast positively. Be more like May. I wake up every day wanting to be more like May. Bree Bree 81 thank you for being a top-tier cheese. M-X-A-N the, thank you for bringing the heat. Ham Bonning, you know I love a slice of ham. Gaylord01, let's talk about Gaylord, shall we? Jack Taylor55, thank you for tailoring this perfect review. Arm4224, I'd give you an arm and a leg for a great review like this one again. Eve KB, thanks for buzzing around like a perfect little bee. Livy 07 2003, thanks for living large. MK Maynard 214, oh, if there's one thing I know about Maynards, it's big money. JC Bindi, thank you for your review. Daisies on Wheels, keep on driving, baby. Thank you so much. Call Kel, thank you for this review. And knowing how to spell. M.W. Wade, thank you for wading into our reviews and leaving us such a lovely one. Anton Bentz, thank you for leaving a review that did not get me bent out of shape. T.K. Laney, thanks for coming into our lane. Riddle Brittle, thanks for riddling me this review. Andrea Z, thank you for giving us such a beautiful review from A to Z. Bone Bone 92, oh, it's a bones day for you. Alexis Tours, thank you so much. Haley Emoji, thanks for being such a beautiful emoji. H-H-U-I-I-I-I-L, 
Thank you for this slew of beautiful letters. Jersey girl forever. Thank you, Bruce. Oh, tell Bruce I say thank you also. Jessit123. Hell yeah. Keep Jess in it. Marim B. Thank you for being here. Cat is far away. Well, I really wish you were closer. Lotus Punk. Hell yeah. Rock on. A Hoppy, oh, thanks for hopping into our reviews. I appreciate you. Christy Yassen, yes, Christy. Thank you for being here. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. We are so, so grateful for the reviews always. We appreciate you guys, and I can't wait to see you next week.